So, uh, good morning, Kathleen. Good morning, Carl. Welcome to A Life in Biography. We're going to discuss uh, your books, James Meredith, Breaking the Barrier, and We Believed We Were Immortal, 12 Reporters Who Covered the 1962 Integration Crisis at Ole Miss. But before we get to both those books, I think you should say something about yourself and how you got to Mississippi, because you don't sound like you're from Mississippi. <laughs> well, that's my New Jersey accent there. <laughs> uh, I was an, a newspaper reporter for 10 years in New Jersey. Um, my longest stint was with the North Star Ledger. And like so many people, I was I married and my, hus my then husband took a job in Memphis and it was to be our grand adventure. And we weren't going to stay more than two years. Uh, that was 40 years ago. Uh, and, and at some point then, I, um, I was no longer married. And I ended up taking a job at the University of Mississippi 24 years ago. So I have lived in the South now for uh, 40 years. And why you never lose your accent, I have changed um, many conversational patterns where yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and you all pops out of my mouth more often than than I expected to. Yeah, it reminds me of a Polish colleague who um, he was born in Poland and he came to this country, got a PhD and stayed here and got a job at Georgia Southern. And I visited him at Georgia Southern. We were walking along one day and so he sees somebody he knows and he says, hey, Bill. <laughs> so he acclimated himself very quickly. So here you are in Mississippi. You've acclimated yourself. And how do you get to write these books? Um, well, one, I am a journalism professor at the University of Mississippi. And as such, uh, research is a strong component of my work ob obligations. And these two books came about well, first I wrote an academic article on Paul Guillard, the French reporter who was murdered on campus during the 1962 integration riot. And I became mm, slightly obsessed with Paul. Um, I was offended that a reporter was murdered while doing his job. And I set out to find out everything that I could about Paul, which um, in the end wasn't, as challenging as it was for some other projects, because I Googled his name, as we all do, and found his obituary in the New York Times, which stated where he was buried in France. And I then contacted the library and City Hall, and I chose the library because every librarian I know, they know everything about the town because they see everybody. And that led to a link to his brother. And that led to um, an academic article about Paul. And in my research, I had filed a freedom of information request with the FBI for the James Meredith file. It came to me on a disk, but when I printed it out, it was um, many pages. And that included a list of the 300 plus reporters who covered the riot in 1962. And because I had so much information, my dean said, well, now you got to write a book. 
And so <laughs> I wrote a book, but I didn't focus on the 300 because my publisher, Larry Wells, said, you've got too much information. Let's boil it down to 12 reporters. And so I picked 12 that fit several categories. One, they were alive and I could interview them. That was kind of a good one. Two, if they weren't alive, I had enough information that I could tell their story. And three, they represented a cross-pattern, uh, cross-media platform, a newspaper, magazine, photographer. And so that led to the first book. Well, you've already, in a way, um, supplied some tips for biographers, and many of them are listening to this podcast. Particularly, the one I like is about know your librarian. Uh, not only what's in the library, library, but but about the li librarian, who, as you say, has roots, often has roots in the community, and can say things that you won't necessarily just find in the books. That is true. That is true, and they're discreet. Yeah, but, but informative. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good way to go. So maybe you should just say a little bit more about the 62 ride. A lot of people will know about this. It's it's quite famous or infamous, uh, but but maybe we should describe it. In um, James Meredith, who was from Kosciuszko, Mississippi, served in the U.S. Air Force in um, many, many posts in the U.S. and most importantly in Japan, where he observed both the racism directed towards the Japanese. And he also, and he, at that point, learned how universal racism was. It wasn't just the Mississippi thing, but also he began to think about it and how he, he was, he felt called to do something about white supremacy in Mississippi. He was further motivated by uh, John F. Kennedy's speech during his inauguration related to the Democratic platform on racism and diversity. And so he set out, he filed an application and was rejected. It took 18 months in the courts, many attempts to register before he arrived on campus on September 30th, 1962. He was taken to his dorm. For various reasons, the U.S. government um, was protecting him, of course, and they set up U.S. models around the administration building called the Lyceum. It's the oldest building on campus and has great fondness among alumni. Because, because of the time, um, students began attacking the marshals with pebbles and slurs, and then around 8 o'clock, a full-fledged riot escalated to bricks. President Kennedy was already aware of the, the tensions and he had army uh, troops um, in preparation for his army to come and to literally quell the riot, to march literally bayonets drawn across the campus to push the soldiers into, um, at least into town where they were further uh, escorted um, out of town. And Meredith finished his coursework. He had already accumulated enough credits at various universities along the way. So he only was here from that September until the following August when he became the first African-American to graduate from the university. 
The portrait that uh, emerges from your books is uh, when he uh, enrolls or attempts to enroll at Ole Miss, he's a little older than the typical college undergraduate. He's got all this military experience. And like a military man, in a sense, he's on a mission. What what turned out, I think, in some ways, uh, and and uh, is fascinating biographically, is it was in a way a one man mission. Yes, he did get the support of the federal government, but to begin with, a lot of people thought that he was kind of a lunatic to attempt to do this in in Mississippi, the most segregated, uh, certainly the most conservative, or people would say reactionary state. Uh, in the country, uh, and yet he persisted. He persisted. He had a quest. He had a goal. And maybe it takes a crazy person to do it, we like to say. Um, but he felt called by both his his heritage um, of having been a descendant of a Choctaw chief by his own experiences, and he, he persisted. Um, Ironically, in all the photos we've seen, he never smiles until he gets his degree. It's the first time he smiles because he was guarded uh, by the um, U.S. military. Military police accompanied him every time he left his dormitory and were actually housed next to his dormitory room uh, for his own safety. Say a little bit about the journalists who covered him, who they were, including at least one African-American. Yes. Um, well, the journalists, as as we all, all as we all know, of course, um, the rest of the world watches America and how it handles its problems and the positions that it takes. So certainly, uh, there was significant international attention being paid to how President Kennedy, the new young president, was going to handle um, the James Meredith crisis. Integration across the South had been contentious, beginning um, definitely with Little Rock several years earlier. Um, Virginia closed its schools. And so here we have a governor who is basically drawing a line in the sand and saying, it's not going to happen here. So some of the reporters, um, among the reporters I, I picked, um, all have a significant story. For instance, Dan Rather, legendary CBS anchor, it was his first national broadcast. But so they sent essentially a junior, uh, photo a junior reporter to come to this contentious uh, place. But for Dan Rather, it didn't quite make his career, but it, it solidified his philosophical and journalistic view in terms of the role of journalism in terms of uh, reporting a story. We had um, Claude Sitton. He was the New York Times Southern correspondent um, across the South. He had covered stories uh, across the South. Um, the word was, you wanted to know where Claude was because he was going to be where the good stories were. And, and Claude being, being with the New York Times and now a seasoned veteran of civil rights things, um, booked several rooms at the Ole Miss Motel, which was a dinghy, um, low-cost budget hotel owned by the KKK, figuring that um, the KKK would not burn down or hurt people housed in the hotel that they owned. Um, hmm. <laughs> so 
uh, Clinton had a team of, of, of four reporters who he could send out to um, cover the story um, comprehensively. Moses Newsom. Moses Newsom was uh, the uh, Baltimore Afro-American, and he was not allowed on campus, um, perhaps for his own safety. Perhaps, perhaps, we don't really know um, the reason they gave, but um, the telegrams show that um, repealed the edict. And that's something else for those who um, do this type of research. The telegrams, um, I found them in the archives. The reporters, because this is 1960, the internet, we don't have cell phones. Um, they filed their stories either over the phone or by telegram. So there you have literally the first draft of history going out over the wires. Um, and then we have you know, several others like uh, Richard Valeriani, who is with NBC. And I know for some of your listeners, these names are all very familiar to them. And Philip Schulke, who was a photographer who had no fear. But during the night of the riot, Philip was in the chemistry building because there was a phone there. And next door was the lab. And he heard sounds in the lab that he didn't like. And they thought, oh my gosh, they're making Molotov cocktails over there. So he boogied out of there and went to the Lyceum. So th these were just some, some of the reporters um, who, I, who I was able to write their stories. And during all this time, uh, Meredith, of course, is being protected. Uh, but what is he doing? Resting. Resting, yeah. <laughs> Meredith will tell you that um, he went into his dorm and he slept through the night and he didn't hear anything um, that was happening on campus. He didn't smell any of the gas because he was at the top of a hill. He went to bed and he was calm. The next morning, he was escorted to the Lyceum to register for classes. Um, once that was completed, he was escorted to his first class, which is colonial American history. And everyone left. And he was the only one. Uh, some of them left crying, perhaps from leftover care gas. Um, but when asked about that, Meredith said, I was already ahead of all of them because I was in class and they weren't. Uh -huh. um, I'm certain that uh, many people who know about the 62 ride, of course, uh, will know about the fierce opposition to Meredith and the death threats and the uh, plots to murder him and so on. But there were some people on campus, uh, even one student at least, who um, wanted to you know, report on what was happening. And that would be Sidna, Sidna Brower, who is the um, editor of the student newspaper. Uh, Sidna was from Memphis, and she was in a senior, but her first year as editor, and her goal actually was to get the paper in the black. Now, Sidna's editorials called for calm and behavior. She actually never took a stance on the integration issue. That was that was perhaps too far out, but she basically chided her fellow students saying, this is not how the University of Mississippi students should behave. Well, even that sharp reprimand landed her in trouble with her sorority, 
he had several sorority sisters who spit on her. She was censured by the uh, Student Government Association, and that lasted for um, 40 years. But in the end, she landed several great internships. And um, oh, she was also nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And Sina, in her very you know low-key way, says, thank goodness I didn't win. Because if you win a Pulitzer at 21, what's there? What's left? <laughs> yeah. um, so she ended up uh, working in public relations in um, in New York City, and then with her husband purchased a newspaper in Denville, New Jersey. Well, her story certainly tells you how hard it was. Uh, she wasn't even supporting Meredith as she wasn't taught, giving editorials about integration, but simply simply uh, calling, as you say, for calm and and to act civilly uh, and to essentially respect his rights. What he liked to say is his rights as an American citizen. Uh, that's what was being denied. It wasn't simply a question of being admitted to a university as important as that was. That is correct. That, that is correct. And I think it was very hard for people. Uh, and you have to put yourself back in the times. And that's what I love about your books. That's exactly what you do. Uh, you, you, you explain how it was for people, even like people like Thurgood Marshall, who, uh, you know, is so important uh, in the uh, judicial decisions in Brown versus Board of Education, and who also showed considerable courage in his visits south, he didn't think that James Meredith would succeed. Uh, and again, we go back to Meredith's persistence. Uh, it's, it's, it's Meredith not backing down uh, that, in a sense, created this concatenation of events uh, that led to his admission to the university. And there was a, a major, several major significance, um, actually, to his being admitted to the university. Other state universities across the South looked at um, the University of Mississippi and said, <laughs> we're not going to have a riot on campus. Um, so they, they resisted, but they folded because they did not want to have that stain on their universities. So it's yeah. viewed as the end of massive resistance to school desegregation. Yeah, it's a powerful, powerful example. Um, and it, I guess the other thing we should say is we're talking about Meredith and what Meredith thought and so on. You happen to know what Meredith thought and what he thinks of your book. Ah, uh, so this was this for the second book, James Meredith Breaking the Barrier, which is a collection of essays uh, written by people who have previously um, written in-depth historical type books um, about James Meredith. And it served as the commemorative book for the 60th anniversary celebrations last week. And so yesterday morning, um, Larry Wells, who is the publisher of the book, uh, he is with Yakna Patafa Press, received a message on the answering machine from Meredith saying it was the best book ever. And he said probably the last book because he is 89 years old. It's a fantastic compliment. Um, anyone who knows anything about uh, James Meredith knows he has very powerful opinions and convictions. And he wouldn't call 
call you up and pay you that compliment if he didn't mean it. That is true. And we have just been glowing because um, the book, Breaking the Barrier, um, I had several goals for this book. And um, certainly we, we succeeded uh, because it is the commemorative book um, for the university. It was going to be distributed, of course, across campus and sold um, on campus and in town. But um, my goal uh, when this was approved was to make sure I had diverse viewpoints. And to that end, I ended up with an equal number of men and women and an equal number of white and black writers in the book. And um, other people may not actually notice this, but they do have noticed the reviewers of uh, the diversity of voices. And one of the um, strongest voices in the book I think is Dorothy Gilliam. And Dorothy um, was the first African-American woman hired by the Washington Post. And she was not allowed by her editors to come the weekend that Meredith arrived, but several days later. And she spoke to the fears of the black community in Oxford. And that's a topic that has really not been covered in all of the books and research I've done. We talk, we learn about the resistance and we learn about the politicians and we learn about the sheriffs and we learn some sentences about, oh, you know, the black community was scared, but Dorothy went and did it in depth. And I think that's an important part of this story that this riot had significant impact on the community, both the black and white community. Uh, you'll hear when I talk to um, some people who, who still live here, that there were, um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, when you, guards, you had to give, you know, show your credentials to get uh, through town or to enter town. But the black community, they stayed away. They left because they were so fearful. Oh yeah, yeah. The other thing that's powerful about her story, and I think this, this is something that uh, uh, journalists certainly, but also biographers would be fascinated with, is you know, how she operated in the Deep South in, with such a sensitive story and with, with in, impending violence uh, to be an African-American in that situation, how she coped with it, what she had to say, where she stayed, where, where, where a black reporter would, would live, you know, uh, all of that, be, you know, comes out in your book. And that was so challenging. Uh, Dorothy, of course, had covered Little Rock. So she um, she knew what she was getting to a certain extent. But when she landed in Memphis, she paired up with the photographer Ernest Withers. And, and Ernest, <laughs> Ernest is one of those guys who can talk himself out in any situation. I mean, he just had that ability. And when they were stopped by the police and they asked where you're going, he said, Jackson, because for a black man to say he was going to Oxford was probably not going to be good for his health. But Dorothy was worried because the South was segregated and Oxford was a very small town. And Ernest kept telling her, don't worry, Dorothy, not a kind of place for you. Well, in the end, a place where many African-Americans traveling throughout the South did stay, you know, she had a quiet place. It was at a funeral home. And she stayed yes, with the family. I've in the field. Yeah.
one. There, there are many stories of black reporters going through the South and, and civil rights workers and so on, uh, because the funeral director not only may have a place to stay, but again, like those librarians you were talking about, really knows the community. Yes. Yes, very definitely. And so um, she contends that she heard of a um, someone being shot um, a black young man being shot, but we found no record of it. Um, so we'll let her have that that memory. But to me, it's more reflection, perhaps, of her own fears. Sure. Yeah. So, how long did it take you to put together James Meredith breaking the barrier? <laughs> well, it was approved six months ago, and I re we really didn't start until after my grades were in in May, and. Um, we reached out to, we knew who the authors were, who we wanted, and we had to, of course, get all sorts of permissions. And so really, three months. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is, it was, it came out from the printers, was in Nashville, which is a, almost a four-hour drive from here. And it came out right, right on, right before, right, said, we are not trusting any uh, mail delivery service. So we made trip to go pick up the books to make sure they would be back here in Oxford in time. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you said a little bit about uh, the response of some reviewers. Um, can you say more about the reception of the book? Have you heard from other people besides James Meredith? Well, uh, certainly on campus, I've heard a lot of, you know, congratulations on your book type of thing. And the reviewers have been very pleased and kind to me. Uh, to us. Um, we've had a few book signings that have been nicely attended and um, and it's selling. So uh, That's good. Uh, it's selling. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's, that's very, very good. Yes, for sure. Is there anything else I should have asked you about the book or um, something you want to say? Well, certainly I have to give a lot of kudos to my publisher, Larry Wells, because we, we when I say we, we did this together. I'm, I've heard I'm, he's a good publisher. Uh, he is a very good publisher with with a very deft um, pen. Um, when you when you read something he has edited, you really can't tell what he did, but you know he did something, which is the best. <laughs> well, you know that's 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 remarkable. I mean, that's a good sign of editing for one thing. The the editor who really knows your voice and stays within your voice, even if if he makes certain alterations or changes. And the other thing is. Not many of us have publishers who are also editors. That is probably true. Yes, they are two di distinct skills, so he is quite talented. Yeah, that's marvelous. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, keep writing books or articles uh, so we can have you on the podcast again. I would love to do it, and thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure, Kathleen. I'll be sending you a link to this podcast, which you can send to anyone you like. Okay, I will do that. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.